Welcome to the Modern Classrooms Project Podcast with Kareem Farah, Kate Gaskell, and me, Zach Diamond. Each week, we bring you discussions with educators on how they use blended, self-paced, and mastery-based learning to better serve their students. We believe teachers learn best from each other, so this is our way of lifting up the voices of leaders and innovators in our community. This is the Modern Classrooms Project Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode number 44 of the Modern Classroom Project Podcast. My name is Kareem Farron. I'm the co-founder and CEO of the Modern Classroom Project. Today, I'm joined by co-host Zach Diamond. Zach, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing really well. It's summer. I'm relaxing, but I'm also mentoring for Summer Institute and I'm having a great time. I love it. I love it. Today's one of our favorite style episodes. It is a Q&A. We have a bunch of questions, a variety of them coming from a lot of sources. And Zach and I are just going to pose the questions, answer them to the best of our ability and keep it moving. Um, but before we get started, I did want to ask you, Zach, how summer's going. And just to contextualize what exactly is going on at the Modern Classroom Project as we speak. Our first session of Summer Institute started on June 28th. That meant that 511 teachers all enrolled in our virtual mentorship program that day. So we have 511 teachers as we speak going through the mentorship program, learning how to build mastery checks, instructional videos, self-pacing plans, and all that good stuff. And Zach is, of course, one of the mentors who are supporting teachers. Zach, how's it going? It's going great. It's going really well. I, uh, I've i been mentoring with Modern Classrooms for quite a while now, since you know, I think like April of last year. And this feels different because people, I guess because it's summer, people are really into it. People are emailing me more, you know, we're messaging more. I'm having more calls with people. People are really enthused about the model. And the calls that I'm having with these mentees, they're just so interesting. There are these deep conversations about some minor little detail, but it's just so interesting. It's like teachers nerding out over teacher stuff. And, you know, it's, it's very busy. I mean, these teachers are really, they're, they're putting the work in and they're sending me stuff to review. And all of their submissions have been really interesting. I'm learning lots of stuff. I'm having a great time. It's really enjoyable. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. It's, it's like um, during the school year, I, I just think it's really hard to balance teaching and learning. Um, and I don't mean teaching and learning as like uh, you're an educator, so you cultivate teaching and learning. I mean, like you're teaching and trying to learn yourself yeah. um, is just a tough thing to balance. Um, and it kind of depends on where you're at in your teaching career. Are you teaching new preps? Like where where is your school at? Is there a lot of change going on? The summer is such a great time for reflection um, and innovation. And we've seen that historically, which is why we get a huge volume of educators who join our virtual mentorship program in the summer. And as you said, Zach, like there's a lot of really interesting discussions because instead of a, I submit, I just got to get through this. I really want to do this model, but I got to build my materials. I don't really have time to sort of debate, discuss, think about new and interesting things as much. The summer is the opposite, um, which I think is super, super cool. And we see this at scale. So the summer moves faster. You know, our virtual mentorship program is eight to 12 weeks during the school year. It's four weeks um, in the summer because folks have the time and space to be able to build their first unit. So yeah, so glad to hear it's going well. I mean, we have, I, I get to look at the data on the back end. Unbelievable amount of submissions, unbelievable amount of activity. Folks are learning. It's really cool to see. Um, we're going to have a thousand plus new implementers of the model come the fall, which is super, super cool. So I'm glad to hear it's going well, Zach. Yeah, it's really amazing. And you know, I did the training over the summer. I did it quite a while ago. 
um, we were, you and I were actually in a classroom together, but you know, I feel like over the summer, you're not in the midst of planning for like tomorrow or next week or, or whatever comes up in school, but you can actually focus on the unit you'll be doing at the beginning of the year without being like in the thick of planning for that unit, which I really feel like gives you a lot of space to kind of sort of relax and think about it more. And that's what I'm seeing happen with my mentees now, which is not to discourage people from taking the training during the school year. No. Like you can definitely do this at any time and implement totally. at any time during the year. But now is a particularly interesting time because people are much more focused on developing ideas and less so on like, how am I going to roll this out now? Totally. It totally depends on where you're at as an educator, where and when you like to do the innovation. You know, we see some of the best implementers learn how to do it during the school year, undoubtedly. But the summer is certainly a, a fascinating and exciting time to do it. You know, we we deal with a similar thing. My co-founder and I, Rob, we talked about this the other day. Like if you just always think about running the organization and not innovating in the future of the organization and cool kind of goal setting exercises you don't really get the time to have those interesting debates about direction and scale and how do we support teachers effectively. So we always have to ourselves craft time and space to pause, to not think about the right now and to focus on the near and the future. And I think summer creates that space for educators. And I think that's really exciting. So we're seeing it in action. You're seeing it in action. Glad to hear it's going so well. Yeah. Um, and we'll continue to update, update listeners just on, on the, how that goes um, throughout the next few weeks. Awesome. Let's go ahead and dive in, Zach. We got a bunch of questions here. I'm going to go ahead and ask the first one and then we'll just go back and forth. Uh, the first question we have is, can you explain the difference between a mastery check and a practice activity? When do mastery checks come in a unit? Zach, uh, why don't you go ahead and start and I'll add any clarity if I uh, have any. Okay. I feel like mastery checks are sort of the the more unique to the modern classrooms model of the two. I mean, a practice activity can really be anything that your students do in the process of developing mastery. Uh, it could even be work on the mastery check itself. Like in my class, that's how my class works. But the idea of a mastery check, I'm really coming to develop this idea in my own head as I work through it with my mentees now. It's, it's really like a check to make sure that a student has learned something. Mastery, right? A check of mastery. And the purpose of that is to have them go back and revise something they have not mastered. That's how I see it. It's sort of like you're the gatekeeper and you need a mastery check to be the gatekeeper. And it needs to be something small and simple that you can grade or just review quickly to tell them, yes, you've mastered this and you can move on. Or no, you need to revise this. You've got something wrong. Whereas a practice activity, you know, it could be any amount of problems. It could be an activity. It could be it could even be a group-based activity. It could be anything. And like I said, in my class, the practice activities, I don't exactly have practice activities because the work they're doing for the lesson becomes the mastery check in a sense. You know, if, if, the, if the lesson for one of my projects, say lesson four is record your voice, right? Well, the mastery check is that they submit a screenshot showing me that they recorded their voice. And I can see from the screenshot very quickly if they did it. And I can say, yes, you did it. Or I can say, no, you need to go back and try something different. Um, and I don't have exactly a practice activity, except that they might do it several times in, in the process of getting it right. But the mastery check really is sort of the, the tool that you use to, to be the gatekeeper between the, the student finishing one lesson and moving on to the next one, which I, I should clarify is not to say that if they submit something, you should stop them from moving on before you've reviewed it. You can let them move through the unit, right? But 
that's how I consider the mastery check to work in a modern classroom. It's, it's how you evaluate whether a student has actually learned the lesson in service of letting them know whether they can move on. Yeah, you know, I, I, I kind of use two, two ways to think about it. Um, the first is mastery check is a small fractional learning experience. The large bulk is the practice activity. So, I mean, that's just the first thing I always tell folks. Uh, the second thing is distinguishing between when you're actually building an understanding versus demonstrating an understanding. You know, a sports example would be the distinction between a game and practice. I mean, you practice skills, you learn how to do things, and then you actually show your ability to execute them live in the game. The mastery check is kind of like the little game at the end of each lesson. Show us as educators and show for yourself as a student that you've actually understood the skill. And as you said, it, it should be fairly brief a, so that students are not spending too much time kind of taking assessments because they are baby assessments. Um, but B, you know, they're going to take some sort of summative. So your goal there is to really, in a short and brief way, figure out whether the students seem to grasp the skills in the lesson. And if they did, fantastic. If they did not, intervene. Uh, it can be tempting, and I, I run into this quite frequently, especially when I used to mentor where educators would try to pack in so much into their mastery check. And I'm like, your mastery check is basically your practice replicated with different numbers or different questions. When really the goal there is to, is to make it bite-sized. Um, so I always tell folks, like, don't feel like you need to ask everything you did in the practice in the mastery check. Kind of distill that skill into one or two quick questions or one and two quick exercises that students can show their mastery on and and that you can leave and grade that and say, you know, if they did this effectively, they're, they're more than likely have mastered the skill and can keep it moving. Yeah. And, and I would also say, like, just in terms of instructional design, having fewer skills in your mastery check is better all around. I mean, it's better for you as the teacher who are trying to evaluate whether the student has mastered something because, like, if there's two or three skills in there and they've mastered two of them, but not the third. Well, did they master the whole thing or not? Like, what do they revise? Do they not revise? Can they move on? But also for the students, it's easier to learn when you're focusing on one skill at a time. And that's why I think it's really important to to break down your lessons into smaller chunks and then have bite-sized mastery checks. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Makes a ton of sense. All right. Shall we move on to this next question? Yeah, let's hear it. What do you do about high-achieving students that don't want to be bothered with helping others? <laughs> I love this question. Um, <laughs> I love this question because I didn't really have tolerance for it. And I, I kind of liken it to, again, like any sort of team sport. I mean, your, your teaching team, your, your school building. Like when folks are not helpful... Um, we should address that as a problem and instead of just assuming like we can't get that student to be helpful. Now, this is all under the assumption that you're not making the student constantly help students. Yeah. Because I have seen examples where like basically a student who's moving through content quite quickly and mastering it is suddenly just like the second teacher. And that's not really what the student should be doing. The student should be achieving their full potential and they shouldn't be spending all of class, especially if they don't want to, helping their peers. With that being said, um, I think this question is actually more directed at the students that we all have experienced where you say, hey, can you go help Catherine on that scale? And they're like, no, or I don't want to. Or you know, when they do, they just kind of say, here's the answer. Um, and it, you kind of look around and you're like, well, that wasn't cool. Um, and 
ultimately when I ran into students like this, when I ran into teammates playing sports like this, when I experienced this anywhere, there's not one right way to do this. Um, but it involves a conversation that I think includes a certain element of listening. Like, why is it that you do not want to help other students? Like what's going on? Um, to, to diagnose the problem first and then articulate why it's an important value in society that you have to be a team player, that you have to be supportive of others, that you have to invest in the larger community. Um, in my experience, a lot of times the students who struggle with that, it's actually a great thing for them to work on because it actually connects a little bit to an element of maybe some social anxiety, uh, maybe some un- uncomfortability meeting new people. Um, and, and that's a skill in of itself. No, or like a lack of confidence with the... Yeah, yeah, totally, right? Like this, the students that I know that I can think of that struggled with this were students who, who didn't inter- like interacting with their peers that they weren't comfortable with very often. Um, and some of the best conversations I've ever had with those students was explaining like, look, you're going to leave this school building and you're going to be interacting with future colleagues, future classmates that you don't know that you may not like, and you got to be able to participate and play um, as a team player. And if you don't, you're going to be working at a disadvantage and really trying to get the student to ultimately understand why it's valuable to be contributing to the larger community. Ultimately, if that doesn't work, you can create systems and structures, right? I had some class periods where I had, you know, a requirement that kids had to share their answers with each other, or share their thinking um, at, with at least one other peer on every assignment or, you know, had some sort of participation grade or structure that included collaboration and stuff like that. You know, I, I didn't love doing that because I wanted kids to be intrinsically motivated to support each other. But if necessary, you can certainly build in systems and structures where essentially their grade is somewhat tied to their commitment to helping other students um, and collaborating with other students. Do you have any additional thoughts, Zach? I, uh, I don't think this has ever really happened to me. Like, generally, the students in my class who are high achieving want to help others, actually. You know, I teach middle school, and I feel like middle school is a time when kids are, like, hyper aware of, you know, being social or wanting to look cool. And maybe this is true in high school, too. I don't know. But, like kids that are high achieving want to show off actually that's been my experience and another thing that i can that i can sort of see leverages that hyper awareness of being social and and interacting with others in like a really careful way is that if i send the student who's asking for help to a high achieving student they won't say no to the student they might say no to me if i'm like hey do you think you could help this student with lesson three but they won't say no to the other student. I don't think that they would be that much of a jerk to each other, <laughs> frankly. Um, totally. But I don't know. I, I, I'm sort of grasping for answers here because I've never had this happen. And another thing I would say to take the question in a slightly different direction, and I've said this before on the podcast too, I don't think that you should only be choosing high-achieving students to be your helpers. I think that uh, you know a student who is not high-achieving but maybe is always on pace or maybe is even a little bit behind pace from time to time might still be a really great lesson helper if they are like an all-star at a particular skill. And so if those students, I think in particular, I wouldn't say that they are being bothered helping others. I think that it's like super motivating to ask a student who may not be like super successful all the time 
to help others, they might feel really great about that. And so just thinking about the social dynamics involved in this question. No, I mean, I think you made a really fascinating observation, though, um, which I've never thought about, which is this idea that if a student goes and asks another student for help, they get a much better response than when a teacher tells student X to work with student Y. Yeah. Um, And I I think that is a fantastic observation. I think you're totally spot on most of the time. And I think it's just a good strategy to actually encourage the student who needs help to go ask for help. Um, And then you have a much better rationale. If the student rejects another student's help, that's just actually being disrespectful, right? Like, that's just not particularly cool at all, right? It's one thing if you, the teacher, are like, go help. But it's another thing if someone's asking you, hey, can you help me out real quick? And, exactly. and they're like, no, yeah. um, which is why they're significantly less inclined to say no. So I think that's really interesting. I mean, or or like if they're genuinely involved with something and they can't actually help, they won't be a jerk about it. They'll be like, oh, um, sorry, do you think you can come back in like five minutes? I'm like trying to finish this thing up. Like they'll, they'll be nice about it, you know? Right, right. Um, I mean, ultimately, too, one thing this makes me think of is like, don't underestimate the fact that you may need to model what it means to help. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, that's not exactly an intuitive skill. Uh, It can be intuitive, but it also cannot be. And certainly we see this at scale when students start to not really help, but just give answers. So this is why I've always been not skeptical, but like. I think folks overuse the concept of collaboration. And a lot of times you see classrooms where collaboration is done for collaboration's sake. Yeah. As opposed to purposeful collaboration. Right. And if you just say, hey, go work with that kid. And then one kid just gives the answers to the other kid. Like collaboration was actually destructive there. So um, that's just something to keep in mind as well. Yeah. Cool. Next question is kind of technical. um, And I don't actually know how good we're going to be at answering this, but let's find out. Um, we have a question from a person who's trying to buy a new computer, a tablet, or a two-in-one. Um, and what they want to be able to do is create instructional videos, use a tool like Explain Everything. And for everyone listening, if you don't know what Explain Everything is, it's it's kind of like a Khan Academy style tool where you're actually able to write on the screen very comfortably. The, the background of your video is sort of this interactive whiteboard. It's really popular instructional video creation tool. And they want to be able to do that with a stylus. Um, so they were just asking what kind of hardware or software is the way to go here. Um, Zach, do you have any guidance? And then I can share my input. Not on the tech itself. I uh, I learned about Explain Everything from you, actually, when I did the Modern Classroom training, and I use it heavily in my videos. It's like the centerpiece of my, of my videos. So I would definitely say, if you can, get a tablet or a two-in-one that has a touchscreen and you can just use a stylus, because those annotations are really great. I mean, teachers are used to writing on whiteboards, right? Like it's how it's how we've done it for years or chalkboards. So, you know, bringing that over into the instructional video paradigm or in, in the instructional video medium, it works really well. It works in the way that I think as a teacher. Um, and so, yeah, I would definitely say if you can use a stylus to annotate your slides or annotate pictures or annotate, you know, problem sets, whatever, what, what have you, definitely go for that. Yeah, Um so a couple couple pieces of advice. I mean, I'm not going to be able to tell you you should get the HP 1000 um, with, you know, seven gigabytes of RAM. <laughs> I can just give some guidance on direction here. Um, so Explain Everything was as a tool that was initially built for iPads. Um, now, they've modified it so that it's compatible with Androids um, and two-in-one devices, but it does at least since I used it, which was not 
more than a few weeks ago. Um, it does work best on iPad. So if your goal is to like use explain everything, iPad's the best way to go. If your goal is just to create instructional videos where you can annotate, then you can certainly go the two in one direction. In fact, if you've gone through the free course, I can tell you how I build my videos, which is that I have a two-in-one device. It is an HP. Um, I use Screencast-O-Matic, and then I have an annotation tool. Um, and the annotation tool just allows me to write, and I actually use the the pen on PowerPoint. So PowerPoint has a pretty nice pen. So I basically set up the PowerPoint. I put the Screencast over it. I use the PowerPoint pen. It's a two-in-one device, and I let it fly. Um, back when I was in the classroom, I would use explain everything more frequently um, just because that was the tool I liked better. It was easier to annotate there. Um, but in the instructional videos that I create for the modern classrooms courses, those aren't as detailed annotations. Um, it's more like annotating text. Whereas when I was in the classroom, I was solving math problems. Right. So it really was like writing on a whiteboard. Um, but both are really popular. And in fact, I, <laughs> There's, it's not conclusive in that, like, I know some teachers who are, like, I live by two-in-one with Screencast-O-Matic or Screencastify, and then I know teachers who are, like, explain everything is the greatest tool I've ever used. Um, so, I don't think there's one right direction there. Zach, correct me if I'm wrong, you use an iPad with explain everything? Yeah, I do. I mean, explain everything is, it's a little bit more powerful in terms of the features that it has, and it's a little bit more powerful also in terms of, like, uh editing your annotations specifically yep. like you can cut things and move them around and stuff like that yep i i actually made a tutorial for modern classrooms on annotating with zoom like any software that lets you draw on on your screen while recording a video uh will work for this and i i do think that having a stylus and so therefore a touchscreen is sort of like a i mean for me it's it's really important to have that because i use it a lot and i annotate i draw i write words i draw pictures i do a lot of stuff with that and i happen to use explain everything which i have put in the show notes totally um but but yeah i would i would say if it's not on an ipad it could be on a on a two-in-one it could be any other kind of tablet but the annotations are really important i think yeah you know i um whenever we partner with schools and districts you know of the 90 partners that we have the majority usually have a fair amount of the tools but whenever they ask me like i tell them you know, if you're going to buy new devices for your teachers, your number one priority is getting them a touchscreen device with a stylus. Because if you have that and you know how to use it comfortably, you can mix and match the right tools um, to create an effective instructional video. And as you just said, I mean, you can even do it on Zoom. So, yeah. Yeah. One one thing I should say about Explain Everything is that this just came up uh, from one of my mentees from Summer Institute. It actually, when you put slides in Explain Everything, it turns them into a PDF. Mm-hmm. So, you actually can't, as far as I know, you can't use animations that are in your slide presentations. No, you cannot. You can just draw in them. Yeah, that's true. In fact, I encourage everyone who uses Explain Everything to PDF it beforehand because sometimes Explain Everything will also mess with the formatting a little. Um, it's 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 both a, a benefit and a cost because it's super cool that now the background of this interactive whiteboard is your slide, but it doesn't mean they don't move um, from an animation standpoint, which is why some teachers live by not explain everything because they love their animations, which is totally fine. Yeah, I mean, the reason that I that doesn't bother me is because I don't animate because I write in the words now. Like, <laughs> exactly. That's become my animations, but other teachers definitely do use animations, and so explain everything might not be the best option. Totally. Cool. All right. I was watching the Edutopia video for like the dozenth time 
And yes, question asker, we that that video gets linked in like every episode of the podcast, and it's linked here as well. So listeners can also watch the Edutopia video for the zillionth time. I noticed how you seem to be directing your students as they walk in, like maybe letting them know where they need to start or sit or something. Assuming that's an accurate observation, would you mind explaining what's happening there? Totally. So um, th- this may be about what Kate was doing. Um, I did this as well in different ways. So I mean, essentially. I used the beginning of class to ensure that students knew what was going on. Now, over time, the kids got really good at doing this on their own. But especially in the beginning of the year or when you're rolling this model out, the first thing you should do within like the first five to seven minutes is just make sure that every kid actually understands where they're supposed to be in the unit. And it's kind of a a test of the degree with which your self-pacing structures, your pacing trackers, your deadlines, all the kind of systems you've created are actually working effectively where it's intuitive where they should be at. One of the most popular ways to do this is the do now. So, you know, every teacher generally knows what a do now is. It's what you do immediately when you walk into class. Historically, at least for me, I was taught to use do nows as like practice problems or something like that. They were content focused. But at the Modern Classrooms Project, and there's actually an Edutopia article and a 60-second strategy on this, we use do nows more frequently as like a daily goal-setting activity. So student comes in, there might be a stack of half-sheet pieces of paper at the door, um, and they're all the same, basically. And the question might be, what lesson are you on today? Are you ahead, behind, or on pace? What do you plan to do in today's class, and how are you feeling? Something like that. And then before they get started on working, they actually hand that to the teacher, or put it into a turn-in bin, and the teacher kind of takes it out, quickly looks at it, makes sure that the, uh, the student actually knows what's going on, and then intervenes if they don't. And that's a really great exercise in basically strengthening students' executive functioning and making sure that they actually use their time effectively. You can also do this just by having students come in, pick up where they left off, and then saying, hey, students, I'm going to spend the first seven minutes of class doing one-on-one check-ins with everyone and just quickly walking by each student and say, you know, what are you working on today? Where are you at? Can I see your game board and keep it moving? Same exercise. It's just a different way of thinking about it. It's a great thing to do, especially in the early stages of the model. You'll find that by the second, third, fourth unit, kids are doing this naturally. And if they don't do it naturally, hold them to it. Create that expectation because it's a profoundly impactful way to create individual goal setting exercises for students and to really ensure that kids are present and paying attention to the larger scope of the learning experience. Yeah. You know, one of the things I really liked about that do now when when Kate showed it to me, I remember Kate showed it to me. And first of all, the questions are they're those like, you know, those questions that like ring teachers bells, you know, like what are you doing well on? What do you need to work on? What can I help you with? That kind of stuff, which is great. I love asking students that. I'm being serious. But also, I was having a lot of, like, I was having trouble reconciling how I would have a do now for a a content-specific do now on a particular lesson when every kid was on a different lesson, like, how I would possibly manage that and keep, keep track of who was on what what lesson and what do now and all this stuff, right? But this just sort of throws that out the window because every kid does the same do now every day. And I really like that, just logistically. It made a lot of sense to me. Totally. Totally agree. The the walking into the classroom, I've talked about this before on the podcast several times, how my younger students, when I first rolled out the model, my sixth graders sort of didn't have any clue of what to do at the beginning of class. Right. And so I started implementing structures like this. And obviously in the in the Edutopia video, there are high schoolers. So this might be relevant to everybody, not just sixth grade teachers. But I found that my older students 
needed a lot less guidance, but the younger kids do need that structure. They need to be told, okay, today we're doing this. Today, lesson four is on pace. And even in some cases, like you said, you know, taking the first five or seven minutes of class to have everyone walk over to the board and look at the pacing tracker with you, right? Those routines at the very beginning of class, they don't, it doesn't really matter what you do, but it does matter that you do something to orient the kids as to what's going on. Yeah, you want to center them. Yeah. I mean, one exercise I actually used to do was, was I would set a, a timer and it was a certain number of minutes that kids needed to be silent just so that they would like kind of orient themselves. Like, where am I? What am I doing? What's next? Because one thing folks should note is that in a traditional setting, they don't actually have the obligation to do that because it's so teacher driven that the teacher does it for them. So students are used to being like, at some point, the teacher is going to say, hey, everyone, stop talking, take your notes out, pay attention to the board. We're doing X, Y, Z. So a lot of times kids are just conditioned to think that until the teacher does that, I can just kind of hang out, chat with my friends. So you've really got to train, support, and kind of empower kids to be self-starters and build the systems. And there's a lot of different ways to do it. Um, And I would encourage folks to try to stagger or scaffold that so you can be pretty aggressive with it in the beginning and make every kid do a do now every single day and then maybe over time you know do three minutes of silence to start the class and then you know get to a point where basically you don't have to do any of that um and it's super cool when that happens yeah let's do this next question and i want to ask you this question because it's specifically for math teachers cool but i do have i do have i think i have an answer for it what do you do with ad hoc video lessons such as how to use the calculator for a specific skill like reducing fractions or to review what a unit rate is that come up as we progress through a unit i'm thinking of topics that many of my students already know but other students need a review refresher maybe a library of skills that can then be referenced as needed the the question asker actually answered the question beautifully. Um, a library of skills is exactly what I think should be done there. What you want to avoid, because it destroys the length of your video, is getting caught up in remedial skills or, or skills that students theoretically should have mastered already in the video. Like I've watched 14-minute videos in math or in science where you're teaching a high school lesson, but you're also teaching in the problem solving a fourth grade skill. So you're like step-by-step reducing the fraction. As you can imagine, if you're doing that, you're now packing in all these different lessons into one and you've just made your instructional video far longer than it needs to be. Instead, a library of skills is the way to go. In an ideal world, you build those instructional videos. But there were definitely times where I didn't have time to do that because I was launching a unit for the first time and I would just pull good YouTube videos um, that were really effective at teaching those skills. Because ultimately... Those are, as the, the person who asked the question said, they're ad hoc skills. So it's not part of the storyline of the unit as much as it is an intervention. So sometimes it's, you can find some really effective ones out there that serve its purpose fairly quickly because it can be difficult to build, you know, 25 videos about all these different little skills. So, um, you know, the, the person who asked this has it spot on. And I put this, by the way, at the top of my learning management system. Um, so... I taught using Canvas, and at the top, it was sort of a library of prerequisite skills, and they were up there. So when a student struggled with something, and I knew it was related to that, I'd say, hey, go up to the top and you know, open up the one about um, reducing fractions or open up the one about rounding, um, and they would go do that. 
I did something, well, actually, I have a slightly different answer, but I did something similar with my LMS too, where I, I would put the unit first, so like the first lesson was first, and then right below the current unit, I'd put the library. But um, there are ad hoc skills in my class too, but I actually do, having taught the class now for almost six years, I do know sort of what those skills are going to be, and I actually do put them in the sequence of lessons uh, for every student to to get to in the unit at some point. And the reason for that, in my particular case, is that I have a class which is mixed 7th and 8th graders, and some of the students have had my class for three years, while other students have never had my class before in the same you know room, same class. And if a student knows how to, to do the thing I'm asking, if they have that ad hoc skill already, they can do the mastery check in like three minutes, you know? They don't even need to watch the video. They can just, right. you know, if if the, you know, the mastery check, or sorry, if the lesson is how to rename your Soundtrap project so that I know that it's yours, right? Or how to invite me to your Soundtrap project. Well, you know, the students that have had my class for one year or two years, they'll do that in, they'll do that automatically. And they'll they'll take a screenshot and submit it. It'll take them one minute, right? But students who who don't know that, can get to that lesson and it doesn't it's not like separate from what they're normally doing and i like that i'm kind of a stickler for having my my class be as linear as possible and having as few detours as possible but i do like i said put together a google doc of what lessons those are and i put them in what you would call the library right so that if a student later in the year says oh how do i invite you to my project which i really would hope that they never did because that's something that's really important that they have to learn on the first day but if they did ask me that i would say oh you need to go back to unit 1 lesson whatever um from the library yeah makes a ton of sense makes a ton of sense um wow the the time is moving by fast but we have time for a few more questions i think we can make it through these all right um the next one is is less so a question uh what sort of a question it's someone who's asking about um zach particularly your method for using what we call yet another mail merge which is a super cool google sheets add-on to send kind of mass emails um that are personalized to communicate with parents now i've seen you do this zach just to contextualize for folks has a brilliant way of keeping parents updated on student progress um, with some level of frequency. Zach, can you just talk through how you do this? And then I know you're actually working on a video as we speak that'll explain this for users, but um, can you just explain how you execute this sort of frequent parent communication and updates? Yeah, totally. I, I wrote a blog post about this and I've mentioned it before on the podcast and it got a lot of hits because people seem to want to be able to do this. And that's why I'm going to make an instructional video on it. I'm working on that. That's my summer project. And I, I want to be clear that like, the parent communication that I'm doing through Yam, which is yet another mail merge, is it's very like it's personalized because it's a mail merge, but it's also obviously impersonal. Like it's obviously sent to everyone. It's just a sort of a boilerplate text of a progress report. And I send it in both English and Spanish, right? But you know, parents don't think that I'm emailing them uniquely. Uh, because I've had that happen where I did send out a yam to like 160 families and a bunch of them freaked out because <laughs> they thought their their students were behind. Um, the way that I do this is, so if you're not familiar with yam, I, actually, I never really understood mail merges until yam because I, from what I know of other mail merges, mail merge programs like Autocrat, is that they put the mail merge, I mean, they put the text into a Google Doc, but yam puts it into an email, like it just directly emails it. And that, I don't know, that worked better with my my way of thinking about sending out progress reports. Yam takes an, an email draft that you've written, and then it populates the text with 
stuff from particular columns in your Google Sheet using data tags. So basically, my progress tracker is a Google Sheet. I'm getting to the point now, I promise. I'll bring it back around. <laughs> the, the Google Sheet has a number of Xs, right? So for lesson one, lesson two, lesson three, lesson four, lesson five, lesson six, whatever. Say there's 10 lessons and the student has six Xs, right? Well, the Google Sheet counts up the number of Xs. That's the number of lessons they've mastered. And then I type in every day how many lessons are on pace. So if lesson seven is on pace, I'll say, you know, today we're doing seven. And then when I go to send a progress report, which I would do every two weeks, Yam would look at the row for each individual student, right? And it would say, okay, student one has completed six lessons and seven lessons are on pace. And at this pace, they're projected to finish the unit with whatever grade. So Yam basically takes the text that I wrote in like a draft email. And in the draft email, you put these special data tags and Yam then fills in that information for each student individually. And so it's sort of like as if you sent out 160, in my case, I have 160 students or so, 160 individual emails because it just sends it to that student and their and their guardians, right? Their family. It's really fantastic. It's really fantastic. It's like sending out grades, but with a personalized note. Um, and again, it's not completely personalized because it's obviously automated, but it is personalized in the sense that every parent knows that I'm keeping track of their kid. Their kid's name is there, and clearly the, the number is associated with that kid. And that is really powerful. You know, every time I do that, every two Fridays, right, every other week, I get back a bunch of emails, right? And some of the emails are from parents being like, oh, how can I help her catch up? Or how can I help him catch up? And then a bunch of emails are from the kids being like, I turned in lesson three, four, and five. And then a bunch of lessons or a bunch of emails are from parents who are just super appreciative. Like, thanks, Mr. Diamond. I really appreciate you keeping us updated. And so I think this is huge. Like, it's such a center, central part of my class now is the pacing tracker. And so sharing that data with parents on a biweekly basis uh, using Yam is is really great. And I will be sharing more on that later. And I'll link the blog post that I wrote in the show notes again. Yeah, I mean, what I would tell folks is try not to be intimidated um, by like this technology because um, it can sound kind of wonky in advanced because it is, frankly. I, I remember when I first used it, contrary to what people may think, I may be the CEO of the Modern Classrooms Project, but I'm not like super tech literate. I, I'm reasonably good at technology. So something like yet another mail merge was certainly quite new uh, for me. And I started to figure out how to use it and it was fantastic um it's super cool it's actually a lot more simple than it seems so definitely read zach's piece you know google it it's a it's a quick google sheets add-on um but if not uh when zach creates that video we'll make sure to post it in the facebook group and on our social media just so folks can see it um because it's an awesome tool yeah i did a pretty bad job of explaining it simply because i'm kind of i'm actually kind of in the weeds with it right now but it is very simple it's a very simple tool like you write an email draft and then you put together a spreadsheet and you do the thing. It's it's actually very simple and very powerful. It's kind of how I feel about technology in general these <laughs> days. It's like a lot of folks don't actually know what in the world the technology is doing, but it's super cool and it's super uh, powerful and the way to execute it tends to be a lot more simple than we think. So um, yeah, I mean, that's my experience with it as well. So uh, awesome question. Folks should definitely check this out. It can make parent communication super smooth. Yeah. Um, I think we have time for, let's do two more. Um, the first one is how do pre-recorded, this is actually a question that came up on t- Twitter. How do pre-recorded pre-digested lectures put students in the driver's seat? 
where is their curiosity and agency in the learning process um, when they're watching sort of instructional videos? Um, Zach, I have some thoughts on this, but curious to hear what you think as well. Mm. Yeah, I, uh, I guess I would just reverse the question and ask where is their curiosity and agency in a learning process where the teacher is holding their hand every step of the way and lecturing to them? Yeah, I mean, what I always tell folks is the blended learning component of the model is the flashy part. Yeah. It's a small fraction of the experience. Ultimately, a student's curiosity, their agency, comes to life in the learning experience you've designed. The instructional video is exclusively used when you have to deliver information to the student. And our belief is that it's a far less effective way to do it live because it limits innovation. Yeah. We know teachers who don't put instructional videos for every lesson. We know teachers whose instructional videos happen at the end of the lesson and the beginnings and inquiry activity. There's a million ways you can do this. What you don't want to be doing is requiring kids to be sitting and listening to a live lecture. So what I tell folks is there isn't necessarily anything uniquely special building curiosity, building agency about a standalone instructional video. Some can be that. Some can be all open-ended questions and kids responding to those questions and doing some sort of activity. I'd say the bulk of them is just a really effective and efficient way to deliver information. If that's where you're hoping to build the curiosity and the agency, you're focusing on the wrong part of the learning experience. Um, and if that's where kids are spending most of their time, you're not using instructional videos all that effectively. So what I always tell folks is that blended learning piece is, is certainly flashy. It's certainly cool. It's certainly powerful because it unleashes the capacity to do the rest of the innovation. But PBL, inquiry, creating student agency, all that kind of stuff, that's the bulk of the learning experience. That's the practice. Um, and that's has very little to do with the instructional video. You know, I think, you can correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not an expert on the like modern blended learning practices, but modern classrooms is not a flipped classroom. No. In the sense, it, it's not, right? It's not. Because the instruction happens as it normally would. Like, if there were 20 copies of me, I could deliver my class, my regular class to each individual student, right? And it would be the same as giving them an instructional video. It's just that there aren't 20 copies of me, first of all, but recording it on video, it makes this possible. And also it means that kids can go back and review it and it detaches content from a particular day. So if they miss class or if they, you know, for whatever reason need to watch the video outside of class, they don't just miss out. It's not a totally revolutionary way of structuring a class. It's just, you know, de-restricting the, the day on which a particular piece of content is taught. I mean, the purpose of the blended piece is exclusively to unleash self-pacing. Yeah. And unleash teacher time. Um, you know, I kind of liken it to, I mean, does one standalone YouTube video that someone Googles... Um, in its own entity inspire curiosity and agency no but the fact that youtube exists and that i'm curious about something and then can go look it up and don't have to wait for my teacher to deliver something in a live manner that creates the structure for kids to have agency and empowers kids to be self-directed learners right so i i, I compare it in that way just so folks can kind of see the distinction there the the individual just like anything in technology, the tool itself is not what creates the powerful learning experience. It's le how you leverage the tool effectively. Um, and that is definitely the case when we think about instructional video use.
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so much of the time in a modern classroom is not spent watching a video. The vast and majority. They're completely in totally. the driver's seat. Exactly. The vast majority of the time. My videos, my classes are 45 minutes long and I keep my videos under five. So, you know, <laughs> they have like 35 or 40 minutes of in- independent work time and they're in the driver's seat. That's right. I'm not doing anything. I mean, I'm doing lots of things, but from their perspective, if I'm not checking in with them, they're in control. 100%. 100%. Awesome. We got one more. You want to ask the last one? Sure. It says, I'm wondering what the scope of a lesson is in modern classrooms. It would be so difficult to shrink a standard into one lesson. So do you create lessons that are pieces of a standard? And if so, a mastery check would not assess whether students know the entire standard, only a piece of it. Simple answer. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Um, You know, like what I tell folks is about skill, not standard. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't, when I read standards... Um, and it depends on the grade level, the content area and all that kind of stuff. But when I read standards, I'm not like, that's a skill. When I read standards, it's like reading a textbook. Some of them are enormous, take like weeks to teach. And some of them can be done in one instructional video. So I wouldn't focus on the standard. I'd focus on the skill. Um, and from there, really think about how you want to execute that. Um, and this, the instructional video should always focus on one skill. In fact, that's supported by the research. So if you build a video trying to address a whole standard and in doing so you've done three skills, that's confusing for kids. It's also confusing for you because then the kid doesn't understand something about that video, but which part? Part one, part two, or part three? And then you're kind of trying to figure out where they should go back to review the content. You break that up into three little parts. Now we can make it much more digestible. Um, and, you know, if you feel for some reason that like I've seen this many times, um, you might have like lesson one or lesson one, part one, lesson one, part two, because for some reason you feel like those two things are deeply connected. That's totally fine. Like I've created instructional videos where kid watches a five minute instructional video, does half of the practice. Then it says in the practice, go to part two. Then they do part two because it's so deeply tied to part one that the mastery check assesses both of those things in one mastery check just because that's kind of how the the curriculum's constructed or that's kind of the logical flow for me. But ultimately, instructional videos should not you shouldn't think of them as, as teaching one standard. You should think about them as teaching one skill. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm always wary of that. Like now that we've learned this, we can learn this next thing, because especially if that first skill is not explicitly addressed as being its own skill, it might cause them to do the second skill wrong without realizing why, you know? Um, like, it's good to have more checkpoints. If if you're going to be teaching the same amount of content, it's better to break the lessons up into more lessons and have more places where you, the teacher, get to lay eyes on the kid's work because that's where you get to catch little mistakes that might snowball into big mistakes or might even not, right? But you you want to address them with the kids. I feel like this is a good bookend to the first question when we talked about a mastery check versus a practice activity because this is a topic that comes up a lot with, with the mentees that I work with. Like right now, you know, most of the Summer Institute mentees are finishing up their, their mastery check assignment. And this is a discussion that I'm having daily, multiple times a day right now. Like, what is a mastery check and how big is a mastery check? It's the most common feedback that I give is like, I think this mastery check might actually be 
secretly be two mastery checks, you know, and it would be worth dividing it in two before you go on to make an instructional video to make sure that you're not going to make a really long video, first of all, but also to make sure that your video is really laser focused on just one skill or concept. What I like to tell folks is please keep in mind that 45 minutes, 60 minutes and 80 minutes are arbitrary. There is no like really comprehensive science behind why that's how long blocks are. Um, and frankly, you know this because one year you might be doing 45 minute blocks and then the next year for scheduling purposes, you find out that the school is going with 60 minutes. And then another year that's like the afternoon blocks are 80 minutes and the morning blocks are 45. They don't actually correlate to the, the length of time a student needs to spend on a specific standard. It's make believe. So the old way to do things is to, to f- basically cram skills into those time frames. So one skill might be much harder and require much more time, but you still give students 60 minutes to do it. And then another skill is easy, smooth, quick, and they still get 60 minutes to do it. Makes no sense. So just kind of eliminate that idea from your brain entirely and just focus on this idea of I chunk things into skills and then I give a amount of time for the entire unit or the half unit, however long your self-pacing is. Um, And if your video is three minutes and relates to 25 minutes of work, great. If it's three minutes and relates to 90 minutes of work, also great. Um, Focus on those individual skills and you'll be in great shape. Absolutely. And and if a student finishes really quickly in your 90-minute class period, they could just go on to the next lesson. It's the beauty of it. Yeah. Awesome. Well, this was a fairly long one. Always, always fun to do this, Zach. Um, we're going to keep doing these because um, it seems like listeners are really enjoying them. So yeah. um, great to hear from you. So glad Summer Institute's going well. I know it certainly is um, seeing it from, from my vantage point, but to hear it from your vantage point is, is absolutely awesome. Great questions from the folks. Um, please continue to ask these. Um, and uh, we hope to be back at it in just a week. We'll be covering a new topic next week, and we'll be doing a Q&A in the next few weeks. Um, so thanks. And as always, folks, um, you can access our content at www.modernclassrooms.org, free course at learn.modernclassrooms.org. Keep in mind, everyone, if you're an implementer, you can still apply for the Distinguished Modern Classroom Educator credential. Please do apply if you're implementing fully. Um, that's how you become distinguished and then can potentially become a mentor so the applications on our website uh, just know that if you're applying anytime between now and september you're going to find out at the end of september about your status Um, zach thanks for joining us absolutely thank you thank you so much for listening you can find links to topics and tools we discussed in our show notes for this episode and remember you can learn more about our work at www.modernclassrooms.org and you can learn the essentials of our model through our free course at learn.modernclassrooms.org You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Modern Class Proj, that's P-R-O-J. We are so appreciative of all you do for students and schools. Have a great week and we'll be back next Sunday with another episode of the Modern Classrooms Project Podcast. Podcast.